X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, February the 8th. Whether you watch the Super Bowl or not, it's a good day to subscribe to The Local or to share it with a friend or to share something you learn. Today, back in the day, February 8th, 1853, Oregon and Washington, the territories, separated. The split set Washington north of the Columbia River and Oregon south of it, kind of like it is today. At the time, the territories included what we know as Idaho and some of western Montana. Prior to the split, the territory was known as Columbia and Olympia was the capital. Columbia Territory included lands inhabited by the Chinook, Spokane, Kalapuya, Klickitat, and Umatilla tribes, to name just a handful. Today, back in the day, February 8, 1915, the white supremacist film Birth of a Nation premiered in Los Angeles. The controversial and racist film, credited as a landmark for feature films, depicted a plot following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and portrays the KKK as a heroic force. African Americans protested the film, successfully attempted to have it banned in many places, and just months after its release, the KKK became active again, some citing the film as inspiration. The filmmaker D.W. Griffith didn't have another box office success in his career. Today, back in the day, February 8, 1968, police shot and killed three black men in the Orangeburg Massacre. Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton are the names of those who died. An additional 28 people were injured. The massacre occurred during a peaceful protest following an incident in which a black man was denied access to the Orangeburg, South Carolina bowling alley. Cleveland Sellers was a student and leader of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was accused of being an inciter and served a year in prison. He was pardoned 20 years later, went on to become president of Voorhees College. It is February, and we are highlighting lives and achievements of black Oregonians throughout the month. Today, we spotlight Kent Ford. Kent Ford was the director of the Portland chapter of Black Panthers. As activists nationwide were in turmoil over the death of Martin Luther King Jr., Kent Ford and other black Portlanders began studying the writings of Malcolm X. Ford was arrested after Black Panther activities began. Upon his release, he held a press conference saying, if they keep coming in with these fascist tactics, we're going to defend ourselves. The Black Panther Party of Portland coordinated a free breakfast program for children in a health center in the Albina neighborhood. Kent Ford is still alive, conducts walks to teach people about black history in Portland. We had the pleasure of interviewing him last year, and it turns out Kent Ford was also the father of a childhood friend of mine. Today, we'll have an interview with anti-war activist Reverend John Deere, not the tractor, and X-Ray. Your quick six news headlines where we will start. Portland's racial disparities and arrests are the fifth worst in the nation. According to data from Campaign Zero, black Portlanders are arrested 4.3 times more than white Portlanders. That is the fifth highest racial disparity in the nation. Black Portlanders are killed by police 3.0 times more than white Portlanders. That's 14th highest in the nation. Seattle ranks 8th. The highest racial disparities in arrests, Washington, D.C., Seattle, San Francisco, and Charlotte Mecklenburg in North Carolina. Portland and Seattle are both under federal consent decrees. They're both aiming to erase those policing disparities. Portland was reporting progress up until February of last year. Summer protests in Portland and Seattle resulted in big spikes in arrests and use of force complaints. And it is likely that in the coming days, the Department of Justice is going to rule that Portland is not complying with the federal consent decree. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Sunday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 393 new cases of COVID-19. Oregon has a total case count of 147,122. There were four new deaths. Our death toll is now at 2,023. The OHA reported 21,694 new doses of the vaccine added to the state's immunization registry. 
a cumulative total of 554,145 first and second doses have been administered in Oregon. Meanwhile, Oregon surpassed 2,000 deaths from COVID-19. Oregon's first COVID death happened less than a year ago on March 14th, when a 70-year-old Multnomah County man died at the Portland VA Medical Center. The 2,000th death happened on February 2nd. A 90-year-old Yamhill County woman passed in her home. The only Oregon County with zero deaths is Sherman County on the eastern edge of the Columbia River Gorge. Deaths in Multnomah County make up nearly a quarter of the state's total death toll. As of Monday, February 8th, seniors 80 years old and older are officially eligible for the vaccine. A decades-long Mount Hood land deal is in its final stages of approval. For two decades, a land swap deal between the federal government and Mount Hood Meadows has been underway. In 2009, Congress mandated the swap, which includes land in government camp and at Cooper Spur. New legislation, concerns raised by the community, and disputing appraisals have kept the Forest Service from putting it through since then. Last week, a rare step forward was taken in the deal when the Forest Service published a draft decision which terms it considered equitable. The decision is subject to an objection period of 60 days could be finalized after that. Officials from Mount Hood Meadows expressed enthusiasm about the, and I am quoting, many potential opportunities completion of this historic land exchange will bring to the communities of Mount Hood and to Oregon. Community members critique the deal as a failure that doesn't match their goal of protecting Cooper Spur from development. The deal would give Mount Hood Meadows 67 acres of government camp real estate for residential development. In exchange, the federal government would get 605 acres of North Mount Hood land added to its protected area. Critics have pointed out the deal undervalues the government camp land. 607 acres with no roads, no development, no water, no nothing isn't anything like 67 acres of developable land. Legislators and citizens are likely to submit objections within the 60-day period. The Oregon House Conduct Committee has voted to expel Representative Diego Hernandez. Last week, the committee held hearings into the allegations of sexual assault against Portland Democratic State Representative Diego Hernandez. Five women said that Hernandez used his position improperly in their relationship with him. He was found to have 18 violations of House Rule 27 pertaining to sexual harassment in hostile workplaces. The committee, made up of two Democrats and two Republicans, voted to expel Hernandez from the House on Friday. In response, various Oregon officials and groups have called for his resignation, including Governor Kate Brown, Treasurer Tobias Reed, and the state's largest public and farm worker unions. Senate President Democrat Peter Courtney suggested that if Hernandez doesn't resign, the House should vote to expel him. An unprecedented move. A successful vote would require a two-thirds majority or 40 members. 26 House Democrats asked Hernandez to resign, suggesting they would vote for expulsion. Hernandez's lawyer says that the representative is not planning on resigning, adding, quote, the conduct he's been accused of does not merit the loss of his seat. Allegations against Hernandez became public last year before he was reelected to the House. Washington may, in fact, allow victims of false police calls to sue for discrimination. Washington's Senate Bill 5135 allows people to sue when they are the subject of wrongful 911 calls intended to unlawfully discriminate against them. 
If passed, the so-called Karen bill allows the person to sue the caller for up to $250. Bill inspired by a similar anti-Karen measure passed in Oregon in 2019. That bill passed with bipartisan support. Laws respond to instances of white people calling the police on people of color just existing in public. Videos of such incidents have become more common and viral in recent years. Sakara Ramu of the Washington Black Lives Matter Alliance said this about the bill. This is yet another way the Washington state can stand up and lead the nation by empowering communities to protect themselves and seek remedies and justice to being targeted this way. Proponents also argue it may reduce the amount of unnecessary public safety resources wasted by unnecessary calls. And finally, good news is the Community Healing Initiative has received more funding to help keep BIPOC youth out of the juvenile justice system. The Community Healing Initiative is a nonprofit focused on supporting BIPOC youth, especially those impacted by gun violence. In Portland, 2021 has already had over 100 shootings, killing six and injuring over two dozen. The nonprofit is a partnership between Multnomah County, the Latino Network, and the Portland Opportunities Industrialization Center, as well as Rosemary Anderson High School. The coalition has existed for about a decade and focuses on reducing the institutionalization of BIPOC youth. The program reaches out to families experiencing violence or near violence with educational resources on services like rent payment. The initiative has recently been granted more funding by the county to support BIPOC youth in the city. And that's that today's, today's Quick, Quick Six, Six local, rundown. local Rundown. X-ray. Coming up next, we'll hear from anti-war activist and Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Reverend John Deere. He spoke with Carly Quadros about the UN's ban on nuclear weapons, which went into effect this year. Here are Reverend Deere and Carly. The UN passed a treaty making nuclear weapons illegal in 2017. Now the international law is finally taking effect. Father John Deere is an anti-war activist, organizer, and past Nobel Peace Prize nominee. He's joining us now by phone, along with Joe Smith. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, so great to hear from you. So nuclear weapons have finally been banned by the UN. They went into effect on January 22nd, over 70 years after the bombing of Hiroshima. What were the events leading up to this treaty and why did it take so long? Well, there's a lot of money to be made planning to blow up the world. And uh, so, <clears throat> you know, the nations of the world are totally committed and nonviolent movements generally take a long time. And this is one of the biggest things. I mean, it's like slavery. Why did, it was, why did slavery exist for thousands of years? And then finally, people organized and it was ended. Um, so it's been, as you said, you know, 75 years, and uh, people have been organizing and marching for many, many years, and um, but really the change happened about 10 or 15 years ago through the country of Norway and a grassroots movement, which the Europeans call civil society, which won the Nobel Peace Prize, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. They were the turning point. Uh, I'm an activist here in the U.S., and we're the leading nuclear weapons manufacturer in the world. So they they came, it was the Europeans who did this. Um, you want me to tell a little more, Carly? Is that enough? Um, I'm interested in your involvement, how you got involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament, um, 
and what kind of events you were involved in leading up to this decision? Okay, well, um, so I have been organizing um, public actions against nuclear weapons my whole life. I'm 61. I've been doing it full time for 40 years. And um, and that means literally organizing event, hundreds of events with hundreds of thousands of people. And I've been arrested many times in nonviolent civil disobedience. I've been arrested 85 times altogether. Holy smokes. Actions protesting nuclear weapons at the White House, the Pentagon, the U.S. Capitol, but across the country. I've been arrested many times at the Livermore Labs in California, the SAC base in Nebraska, the Trident submarine bases in uh, Washington State and Georgia. And for the last 20 years, I've led an annual protest march in Los Alamos, New Mexico, where I've lived until recently which is the birthplace of every nuclear weapon. And it's because of my activism and total involvement around the world that I got invited to speak in Norway at the launch of all this. That's my connection there with with Martin Sheen, the famous movie star. So we flew over to Norway on March 1st, 2013. And we're the keynote speakers for this new effort by Norway and some group called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And uh, there were thousands of people from around the planet. These were the leading voices and organizers, really serious people who've given their, all their lives to ending nuclear weapons from probably 80 nations, as well as the Norwegian government. The Secretary of State hosted us. And... Um, I wrote about it in an article people can look up at wagingnonviolence.org because, I, I, as I said there, I was so involved my whole life and getting arrested and giving impassioned speeches against nuclear weapons. They're, you know, totally insane. They don't protect us. They're, they don't help us. They're a total failure. Uh, you know, you could go on and on. Uh, they don't provide jobs, they don't make us secure, they're sinful, they're immoral, they're human, in fact, they're bankrupting us. But we get there, and we're meeting these leaders, and they say to us very nonchalantly, we're going to get rid of nuclear weapons. Like now. And uh, we're being introduced to all these very prestigious people, and they're all saying, including the Norwegian government, they're talking calmly, yes, we've decided to get rid of nuclear weapons. And Martin and I look at each other like, well, you know, good luck with that. You know, we organize to end this, but it's never going to happen. But you just presume it's not going to happen in our lifetime because the whole world nation-state system is built around the lie of nuclear weapons. The United States has poured trillions of dollars into it, totally wasting our country. And these people in Norway are saying they're going to get rid of it. But what I didn't know, and as I wrote in the article, is these were the people who got rid of landmines in the 1990s. And many of you remember Princess Diana and her campaign. These were the people who did it. Norway organized it. They knew what they were doing. They had a completely different strategy than the rest of us in the U.S. because they're so international. And the Europeans look at things differently. With Landmines, they said, we're going to get a treaty in the U.N. We're going to get, you know, a hundred nations in the world to sign it. And then we're going to chip away until we shame 
the last few countries which manufacture landmines until even their own people rise up and we get rid of them. And they did it. So then they said to themselves, we're going to get rid of cluster bombs. That was in the 2000s. And they did it. And so they're turning to Martin Sheen and me and saying casually, now we've decided to get rid of nuclear weapons. And two weeks ago, for the first time in history, the United Nations passed the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, the first legally binding treaty in world history towards their total elimination. Their goal is the elimination. Uh, 122 nations originally voted in favor of motion that once they had 50, it went into law. So I think they're at 52 right now. And what keeps me hopeful is all the great people I met in Norway who, who are working away on it. And their strategy is they're going to get 140 nations to sign it, 10 years maybe. And then they're going to turn to the big, I think, nine countries that have nuclear weapons like us. Uh, the United States, Britain, China, Russia, Israel, I think Brazil, until we're shamed into eliminating nuclear weapons. And they're very optimistic that it's going to happen. So this is all astonishing, and we've had such a bad time with Trump and the world and the pandemic, but it's really worth uh, taking hope in. Wow. So so how does it feel to be you in that moment in Norway as an activist after being arrested so many times, campaigning for so long? How does that feel to be you in that moment? Does it feel like a victory? Well, I didn't think it was going to happen is what I tried to tell you. <laughs> it was, you know, I travel full time until the pandemic. Every week I'm giving speeches across the country. I've spoken to a million people. I've written 35 books on peace and I'm always organizing, always. So Martin Sheen is an old family friend for 40 years. It was a lot of fun, and I love Norway. And they had a big dinner for us in the hall where the Nobel Peace Prize is given. And I've been nominated maybe eight times for the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think it's ever going to happen to me, but uh, it was all very exciting. And to meet such great people, um, and that night in particular, uh it was a lot of fun, and as a public speaker, you don't ever, you rarely happen like that. Now, these are some of the most serious people I ever met, and I'm in the, we're in the big university in Oslo, and you know, the, it's front page news in Norway. This event, the launching of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. So those people who won the Nobel Peace Prize brought Martin Sheen and I in to speak in front of the Norwegian government, and they're all going to have a one day meeting. And as I, as I vaguely recall, well, I guess the speech was Saturday night. They were workshops all day Sunday. And then the formal meeting to launch it was Monday. And that was the end. What they didn't know is that uh, Martin and I are pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> and these people were not like more most activists. Uh, so we said we're there to support them. And we totally support them. And then we started telling our stories. Martin, you know, I helped get Martin arrested for the first time 35 years ago at the Riverside Research Institute. So the old leftover Manhattan Project, if you can imagine, used to be at Port Authority right of 42nd Street up until 1993. My friend Daniel Berrigan and I would get arrested there every three months for 20 years. And Martin Sheen came and joined us and 60 Minutes covered it. 
and it was a lot of fun because you're singing and carrying on. Well, we closed the place. It left. And then we were getting arrested at the Nevada test site. We led, eventually got, we brought 25,000 people to get arrested in the late 80s and early 90s, an hour north of Las Vegas, this huge test site where they had been doing above-ground tests, now they were doing underground tests, and we stopped that. See, the only way change happens is uh, grassroots, bottom-up people power movements. That's how slavery ended. That's how women got the right to vote. That's the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, the growing uh, environmental movement. Now there's thousands of movements around the world. So we were telling them outrageous stories, and the audience was laughing and just totally energized. That's what we learned later, and they all still remember it. Uh, you may know, too, in December 1993, I walked onto a big military base in North Carolina with some friends and right through <laughs> 10,000 soldiers up to a big nuclear-capable fighter bomber, and we hammered on it uh, to fulfill the biblical passage from Isaiah that someday people are going to beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. And I faced 20 years in prison for that. Wow. I'm an ex-con. I did a year in prison. Martin used to visit me. So I'm telling them all this story. And, you know, it was pretty funny. <laughs> and one t- Martin says, tell the time you saw I swam in a canoe <laughs> down the Thames River out of Connecticut when they were launching a Trident submarine into the Thames River and into the Atlantic. <laughs> and they had 10,000 uh, Navy officials all dressed in white with the band playing and the Trident submarine is out above ground and is going to be lowered and they've closed the river and three friends and I are in a canoe <laughs> and we come paddling down illegally with the police chasing us and held up anti-nuclear signs and we disrupted the whole happy launch of the end of the world. They were so happy to be <laughs> launching their new submarine. Of course, we were arrested and faced a year in prison for that. Well, the place was riveted and electrified and shocked. And that's where we Americans are different as activists, you know, really serious activists. Uh, I don't, are just amazing people. And, and I was raised by Daniel Berrigan and he learned, he told me when you're going to spend your life resisting death, you better learn to love life. And Martin is part of that too. And uh, so it was an electrifying evening. And they all told us that we had a big impact on them because they were so fired up. Like, hey, if these crazy Americans, including the famous actor, are doing uh, this wild stuff, which is not going to make any difference, right? We're just offering symbolic, trying to wake people up and saying, folks, we got to get rid of these weapons. We better get to work because mm-hmm. we are the people who know how to do that. Mm-hmm. They all agreed with us, but they were a little bit depressed. And the next two days, they were high as a kite. And um, here we are. Mm-hmm. They did it. I'd actually, I'd like to linger <laughs> they here. They did it. We have a treaty. And, <laughs> and, and, and I came back, you know, the progressive radio show Democracy Now! with Amy mm-hmm. Goodman. She's mm-hmm. a friend of mine. I called her. I said, you wouldn't believe what happened to Oslo. She goes, no way. And she wouldn't cover it. She got no coverage. And that's also classic. You know, we're going to wake up, I hope, one day if the world survives, if the world survives. Mm-hmm. I'd actually, and, uh, 
just see in the newspapers nuclear weapons were eliminated and go, oh, that's nice, and turn to the sports page. It's just going to be quietly happening. Mm-hmm. That's my. That's what I think will happen if if it's not used. You know. Mm-hmm. In our last few minutes, I want to touch on something in the treaty. It includes reparations for victims of nuclear testing, and now the 2020 Democratic Party in their platform also promises to expand uh, compensation for victims of nuclear testing. You touched on this a little. Who are the people that have been harmed by nuclear tests? And what kind of attention or reparations have they gotten in the past? What do they need now? I don't think anybody's gotten reparations in the past. So first of all, there's the Habakkuk show. Uh, you know, it's odd. I've been invited to speak in Hiroshima, but I'm not allowed in Japan because of my felony convictions for working for nuclear disarmament, even though the mayor of Hiroshima wanted me to speak there. But the Habakkusha have come to me and to meet me in New Mexico. Now they are, that's the Japanese word for atomic bomb survivors. Well, do the math, they're all like 85. I probably met 20 or 25 in my lifetime. Um, These are people who were just outside the bomb radius who got injured, who lost all their families, who literally saw Hiroshima or Nagasaki explode, vaporize in front of them. And I've met people who did it. Or their children who have cancer, uh, you know, because their father and mother, uh, you know, had it and exposed them and so forth and so on. Or they lived in the area, got radiation exposure. So they all need massive reparations, money, literally, the families for medical care. Now that there's the downwinders here in the United States, because if you think about it, Nevada is the most violent place on the planet because we blew up 1,500 nuclear weapons in the desert there in the 1950s. We also did so in New Mexico, certainly with the first one there in uh, July 16th, 1945. When they did the first test, they didn't know what was going to happen. And they thought that they were going to light the entire atmosphere around the planet on fire, and they did it anyway. Can you imagine? These people are insane. So when those bombs go off, it let loose all this radioactive material in the air. So people downwind, they call it. Certainly the indigenous people in New Mexico and Nevada, and the poor people living in the desert in the 50s and 60s, have huge cancer uh, uh, rates Mm -hmm. and all kinds of other diseases. And I've met them now. And then there's the people working in the uranium mines in New Mexico. The core indigenous are hired to dig for uranium. And they they, have been exposed and have very high cancer rates. I think we're all downwinders, frankly. I think all the cancer, the... uh, you know, it's, it's almost an epidemic of cancer in the United States. Why is that? You know, I, I was ta- I was speaking somewhere now. Forgive me, but I don't remember all the details. But someone was telling me, like Nigeria has two people with cancer. In it. Interesting. Whereas the United States has millions of people with cancer. Well, if you if you expose fifteen hundred nuclear weapons. That means those radioactive minuscule particles are floating all over the country now, and certainly in the West. Um, All those people need reparations. All that needs to be worked on. New Mexico and Nevada need to be totally cleaned up. 
But there's other places where they dump all this radioactive waste in Washington State, Oregon, all that, you know, we need to stop making the stuff and then spend millions to clean up and then give free health care and reparations to all the people who suffered from this. We have to just change the whole country. Well, I need thousands more people giving full time their lives to work for peace like me. So if you're out there and you hear the call, join the movement. Wow, there's just so much more that I want to talk about, especially when it comes to pollution from nuclear testing, especially here in Oregon. But unfortunately, we are out of time. So I just want to end by saying thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk with us. Thanks, Carly. And maybe people could look up uh, my website, johndeer.org, D-E-A-R, and my new organization, beatitudecenter.org. I do workshops and Zoom workshops and uh and people can get my books on Amazon. So I wish everybody all the best. God bless you, Carly. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Have a good morning. Thanks to Reverend Deer for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in under 30 minutes. Thanks also for subscribing and giving your five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.